remember that uh, my wife and I enjoy watching some of the old TV shows. You know, some of the old shows are worth watching. I don't find much new that worth investing any time in. Uh, but some of the old shows we enjoy watching, and uh, we do that from time to time. And sometimes when we're watching a show, you know, the, uh, the, the time is up, but you realize the plot has not yet been completed. And suddenly there'll be a sign on the screen that'll say, to be continued. Well, that's kind of the way it is with my sermon last week and my sermon this week. I really could have ended last week by simply saying, to be continued. Because our passage this morning really does continue the same train of thought that Paul was expressing in the previous verses. So just to refresh our memories and to help those of you who may not have been here last week, at the end of chapter 4 here in Ephesians, Paul is, is teaching about the new way of life that you and I should experience as believers in Christ. You know, when we're born again, the Bible says we become new creatures. We're new. The Bible says when we come to faith in Christ, old things pass away and new things come into our lives and into our experience. And the Christian life, to a great extent, is simply a process of putting off the old and putting on the new. Putting off those things that displease God and putting on those things that we know please Him. Uh, That's what we know as repentance. Turning away from what God doesn't like and turning toward what God does like. That's the whole process of sanctification. Growing and maturing in Christ. Allowing our lives to become more and more Christ-like so that He is more and more pleased with what we do and how we live before Him. And so we're to put off these old patterns and practices of disobedience and we're to put on these new patterns and new practices of obedience. Well, here at the end of chapter 4, uh, Paul gets specific. He talked about it in a general way earlier in this chapter. But here at the very end, really beginning with verse 25, where we started last week, Paul begins to get very specific. And he talks about some specific behaviors, sinful behaviors, that you and I are to put off. And then he goes on to talk about the specific behaviors we are to put on in their place. For example, last week in verse 25, we saw that we're to put off falsehood and put on the truth. In verses 26 and 27, we were to put off a sinful anger, an unrighteous anger, and put on a righteous anger, a right anger against the right things, that is, against disobedience and sin. In verse 28 then, we saw that we were to lay aside or put off theft and in its place put on hard work and generosity. And this morning, it just continues. And this list continues that Paul gives us of more behaviors we're to put on and the behaviors we're to put put off and the behaviors we're to put on in their place. So let's see what those are. First, we find in verse 29... They were to put off unwholesome language and put on godly language. Now, at times like this, the Bible gets very personal. 
And it's time like this, I know, we preachers, we start preaching, and this is where we start meddling. Uh, it touches, but that's what the gospel does. Is the gospel touches every part of our life. It touches what we do. It touches what we think. And it touches what we say. And that means that what we do, what we think, and what we say is all to be instinctively Christian. That is, it is to be impacted and driven by the difference the gospel makes in our lives. And here in verse 29, the difference the gospel is to make is in our language. The words that we use, what we say, and how we say it. Now the Bible has a lot to say about the power of the tongue. It can be used as a powerful power for good, or it can be used as a power for evil. Words that we use can build up, or words that we use can tear down. As I mentioned, Dr. Blanchard is going to be teaching through James uh, this evening, because James has a lot to say, doesn't it, about the power of words. In fact, James says that if you can control your tongue, and if you control what you say, then you've got it made. He says you can control every other part of your body if you can control this restless evil right here. You know, James goes on to compare uh, the tongue to a, to a rudder in a ship, just a really, which is a small part. But yet it directs that huge vessel. He compares the tongue to the power of it to a, just a little small spark. It can ignite a vast, roaring forest fire. And he goes on to say, you know, we have the ability to tame all kinds of wild animals. And we find it so difficult to tame the tongue and control what we say. Here in our text, the admonition is in verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. The word for unwholesome there means corrupt or rancid. It was often used to describe spoiled food. So we're not to express or to speak any foul or rancid language. Bad language should be just as repulsive to a believer as a spoiled piece of meat is. You know what that's like. You want to turn away from it in disgust. And that's the reaction that believers ought to have to this kind of language. No off-color jokes. No profanity. No dirty stories. No vulgarity. No cursing or cussing. You look over in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 4. Paul expands on that just a bit where he says, And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting. You see, that kind of language is not fitting in the life of a believer. Now that's a challenge, isn't it? For every believer. That's why David prayed in Psalm 141 verse 3, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. That's his prayer. 
Set a guard over my mouth. Keep watch over the door. Here it is, the door of my lips. David knew he could not do it on his own. You can't do it on your own either. This is the restless evil about the powerful and you must pray with David that he would help he would guard your mouth your words the door of your lips and what you say and how you say it the Bible really gives us only one way to change your language and that's by changing your heart see the Bible says that the heart and the mouth are connected look with me at Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. We'll look at the end of verse 34. These are the words of Jesus. The end of verse 34 says, For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And then if you turn over with me to Philippians chapter 4. You see, a corrupt mouth comes from a corrupt heart. Uh, It's not in my notes, but I'll just go ahead and say it. One of the most embarrassing experiences I ever had was something I wasn't aware of. Years ago, I had uh, knee reconstruction surgery. And I had one request for my surgery. That was that my brother-in-law was a big, strong, strapping country boy. I want him to be with me. And so he did. But my brother-in-law took the day off and he came to be with me during the surgery. And that was back in the old days, you know, when they've, they've changed that surgery since I had it. And, uh, when my surgery was over, they had me in this uh, contraption that kept my knee and leg moving all the time. And I had, I had a pump where I could pump pain medicine into me. My brother-in-law sat with me while I was coming out of my anesthesia. I don't know what I said. He's never told me what I've said. But he wasn't good. That scared me. Out of the heart. Out of the heart. Just need our work. You look with me at Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. It says this. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence or anything worthy of praise, dwell, I mean dwell or think, on these things. What does the Bible say? As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So here's what you need to understand. The more you dwell and think on what's true, what's honorable, what's right, what's pure, what's lovely, what's of good repute, the more you dwell on those things, the more your words will reflect it. And the more your heart will change what you say. So we're to put off unwholesome language. And in its place, Zach says, we're to put on guided language. 
or, or language that reflects the character and the heart of God. What does that guided language look like? Or maybe I should say, what does it sound like? Paul gives us three descriptions of it. Still in verse 29, where he says, for one, this guided language is edify. We're to speak, he says, verse 29, only such word as is good for edification. Edify means to build up, to encourage, to instruct, to lift up. And even when we correct someone or admonish someone, our goal ought to be to encourage them, to build them up, and not to tear them down. I'm sure we've all had the opposite experience. All had the experience of or times where someone's words cut us to shreds or beat us down. But the Bible says words are powerful. Powerful for good, powerful for evil. I've told you before, you know, one of the biggest lies ever put upon the human race is the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bone. But words will never hurt. There have been times that I'd rather take a beat, physical beat, and sit through what's been said about me or to me. Words can destroy our confidence and they can hurt our self-esteem. They can damage our reputation. Words can tear down and destroy. And so we need to take heed to what Paul says here. That instead of speaking unwholesome words, we're to speak only such a word as is good for edification, for encouraging, and for building up. Another is that God in language is timely. Or what the, my text describes as a word that is according to the need of the moment. Sometimes the important thing is not just what we say, but it's how we say it and when we say it. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 25. I'm breaking in a new Bible this morning. The old one is disintegrating. So I'm having a little trouble finding my place here. It's a little stiff. Proverbs chapter 25. In verse 11, it says this. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Or, as Paul would say, according to the need of the moment. In right circumstances. Then go back to uh, chapter 15 of Proverbs. In verse 23. Where it says, A man has joy in an apt answer. And how delightful is a timely word. A word spoken, again, as Paul would say, according to the need of the moment. So, it's important not just what we say, but when we say it. And still another we find in this verse is that a guided language is gracious. Uh, Paul goes on to say in verse uh, 29 that our words are always to be spoken in such a way that they'll give grace to those who hear. 
Our words are to be gracious. They're to communicate grace to other people. You know, we, we're saved by grace and we live in grace. We live by grace. And people ought to experience grace that comes from us. So godly language is gracious language. Communicating to others the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul says in Colossians 4, let your speech always be with grace. Seasoned, as it were, with salt. And so our, our speech should communicate the grace of Christ to others. Now, that's probably very convicting for many of us. So it's a call to repentance, isn't it? It's a call to a new way of life based on the new life that we have in Christ. A change, however, that can only come from a changed heart. So that's the first. Put off unwholesome language and put on uh, godly language. Second, we find in verse 30 that we're to put off anything that grieves the Holy Spirit and put on in its place a desire to please God in all we do. Look at verse 30. It says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, many commentators kind of scratch their heads and wonder, if you, you look through commentaries, they wonder why this verse is put there. I tell you over and over again, I'm a simple man, i got a simple mind. And to my simple mind, it makes perfect sense. What's been talk, Paul talking about here? He's talking about putting off behaviors that displease God and putting on behaviors that please Him. When we disobey God and displease God, it grieves God, doesn't it? God has emotions. And you're a parent and your child disobeys you. Does that not grieve you? Certainly it does. Multiply that infinitely over. And when you sin, it grieves the heart of God. And here the specific reference is to God, the Holy Spirit. Why? It's because when we become believers in Christ, we don't just exercise faith in Him and, and, and trust in Him, but He becomes a part of us. We Presbyterians probably don't talk about it enough. Holy Spirit lives in us. The Bible says we become the temples of the Holy Spirit. He is with you at every moment that you live. It isn't just that God knows what you're doing and He sees what you're doing. The Holy Spirit is with you in what you're doing. And when you disobey, it grieves Him. And so in, it's, it's very appropriate, isn't it? In the middle of this discussion about putting off and putting on, he says, look, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. By your thoughts and, and by your words and by your actions, don't grieve Him. And he talks about two uh, relationships we have to the Holy Spirit. He says, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He talks about being sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. And, and really that just covers the, the full expanse of our of our Christian lives. When are we sealed by the Holy Spirit? We're sealed by the Holy Spirit at the moment of our conversion. At that very moment, when we come to faith in Christ, we are safe and secure. We're sealed in Him. Our salvation cannot be taken away. 
And we're sealed for what? For the fullness, for the day of redemption. When Christ comes again and receives us to himself, covers the full gamut of our salvation. And Paul said to us, during that whole experience, our main, one of our main goals is not to grieve the Holy Spirit, not to live in a way that would bring him grief. And then we find in verses 31 and 32, really quite a long list of behaviors that we're to put off and, and put on in order for our lives to be pleasing to God. It's almost to me as though Paul wants to say so much more and covers so many more areas of our lives as he's led by the Holy Spirit here. But there just isn't the time or the space to, to deal with them at length. And so he just kind of lists them here in verses 31 and 32, identifying additional things that we're to put off, and that things that displease God, and put on other things that please him. Let's see what those are in verses 31 and 32. In verse 31, we find a list of things we're to put off. And one of those, the first one in my text, is bitterness. That all bitterness be put away from you. Bitterness is a wicked sin. It just eats away at our souls. It's, it's a deep resentment. A profound irritability. A settled hostility. Bitterness can do untold, almost irreparable damage to relationships. However, it's interesting, in Hebrews chapter 12, we're told, see to it that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. That's an interesting verse. See that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. That means if you're going to deal with, with bitterness in your life, you just can't deal with it up here. You can't just snip away the, the, the evidences of it. You've got to get down to the core of it and deal with the issue that's really causing the bitterness. It's like when, you know, I've got a, a, a bush in my yard, perhaps, or a weed that is growing and I want to get rid of it. Yeah, I can cut it back all I want to, but what's going to happen? We'll keep coming back. I got to, I got to dig up the root. And that's the way it is with bitterness, folks. You got to get, you got to, got to dig deep. You got to get at whatever it is that caused it, or it's going to keep just popping up. Let no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble. It's interesting, all right, guys. There's a specific reference in Ephesians. Husbands, do not be embittered against your wives. It's got to be there for a reason. Husbands, do not be embittered against your wives. And so, we've got to be careful about this bitterness, both in the church and in the home. In general relationships, in the community, in specific relationships within our families as well. Then he goes on to say in verse 31 that we're to uh, let all wrath and anger be put away from you. I'm going to take those two together because they're so similar. We talked about anger last week, specifically about 
a sinful anger in contrast to a righteous anger, a right anger. Here it's clearly a, a sinful anger that's in view to be put away. You know, it, it, wrath and anger. What's the difference? Wrath is, is more of a kind of a, uh, a rage of temper. And anger is more of a simmering kind of hostility. Anger is just what we have. Wrath is the expression. And, and Paul says we're to put those away from us. Now, you don't have to be in a screaming fit to show anger. I happen to be one who sometimes shows mine through a screaming fit. Confessed to that last week. My wife's sitting here. I've got to be open about that. If my sons were here, they would testify to that as well. Oh, that I could rewind the clock. Hmm? Take back some of the things that I said and the way I said them. But you know, many people show anger by being sullen withdrawn and cold this anger all the while and Paul says put it away from you then he goes on to say that we're to put off clamor and we don't use the word clamor often do we clamor what's clamor well it ties in with wrath and anger clamor is having a shouting match Clamor is the expression of this wrath and anger that many times we experience. Is raising your voice in a quarrel. Uh, he says we're also to put off slander and malice. And you know what slander is. Slander is speaking evil against another person, especially behind their back. Saying things about people, other people, that are not true. Slander can damage someone's reputation. It can uh, do uh, untold damage to relationships. And, and Paul says we're to put slander away from us. Well, what's malice? Malice is the motive behind it. Why do you slander someone if you don't have some malicious intent behind it? Malice is the intent to do harm, to do evil, to tear another person down. Malice is the intent, the driving force behind the slander. And he says, look, you put, put them all aside. Put the slander, put the malice far from you. Now, I want you to notice something before I move on to the positive side. That all these behaviors, really, if you go back, if you go back even to last week, the behaviors were to put on, off, and the behaviors in their place were to put on, are on the horizontal level, aren't they? They have to do with our relationships with other people. You see, it's so true in the Bible. The way that we treat one another matters. The way that we speak to one another matters. The way that we have respect for one another matters. The way that we protect the esteem of each other matters. The way that we deal with issues that arise between us, it matters. We're not supposed to deal with things the way the world deals with them. 
we're supposed to deal with it. God wants us to do it. The way the Bible says we're to do it. We are Christians. So we're to deal with it in a Christ-like way. These things, these behaviors are on the horizontal level dealing with each other, but they reflect, don't they, our vertical relationship with God. They cannot be separated. And then the passage closes in verse 32 with these behaviors we're to put on in their place. The first one, he says, be kind to one another. You find it interesting that the Bible has to tell us to be kind. Wouldn't you think that, especially as Christians, that's something we can just figure out on our own? That we can be kind? But here God is instructing us, saying, look, don't forget. You be kind to one another. And he puts it there because God knows our hearts. And because he knows the weight of sin in our lives. We are to be kind. Why are we to be kind? Because if we want to be like God, we've got to be kind. Because God is kind. Look with me at Romans chapter 2. I did one of my concordance searches this week and look folks we could go to a lot of verses we don't have time to go to Romans 2 and verse 4 where it says this or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness or intolerance and patience not knowing that it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance the kindness of God that leads you to repentance Peter talks about our conversion experience being one of having tasted of the kindness of the Lord. Now would you look at one more verse if you look at Luke chapter 6. I want to read the end of the verse again. Luke 6 verse 35. Very end of that verse. Well, let me read the whole verse. It says, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High. Here it is. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. God is kind even to those to whom it is hard to be kind. And so it makes sense that God tells his people, I want you to be kind one another. What does Micah tell us? What does God require of us? He requires of us to do justice, to love what? To love kindness. And to walk up with our God. You know, Mason uh, was talking this morning about Jesus' command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. What does that mean? How does that, that manifest itself? Well, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul defines love. And he says what? Love is 
Love is kind. Love is kind. So, we are to put on kindness. He also tells us uh, in verse uh, 32 that we're to be tender-hearted. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. That reflects having compassion, empathy for other people, a genuine concern for what they're going through. Flip over to Colossians chapter 3, just a moment. In verse 12, I want you to kind of keep your finger in Colossians 3 for just a moment. It says, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. That is, this is how the people who are chosen by God should live. This is the way the holy and the beloved of God should live. To put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That's what it means to be tender-hearted. The other trait, keep your finger in Colossians 3. The other uh, reference at the end of verse 32 is toward forgiveness. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. If you go back to Colossians 3, verse 13 says, Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. As Christians, folks, we are to forgive, and we are to forgive, and we are to forgive. And we are to forgive because that's what God does for us. God forgives he promises to forgive, doesn't he? If you confess, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. Now, that's hard. You know, let's just get it out on the table. <laughs> let's be real frank here. Forgiveness is hard. And, and part of what makes forgiveness hard is, is even though we might try to forgive, we just can't forget can we we just can't forget and the bible says that god forgets our sins what does that mean does it mean you know can god ever forget anything what does it mean that god forgets our sin what it means is that god doesn't hold our sins over our heads any longer he doesn't deal with us according to our sins anymore. He doesn't make us pay for that sin again and again. He doesn't bring it up to us over and over and over again. You see, forgiveness, folks, is not forgetting the sin necessarily, but it's letting that sin go. And it's not holding that sin over someone's head any longer. You're saying, I forgive you, Joel. And I'm going to let you go of that sin. I'm not going to hold it against you any longer. Because you're my brother in Christ. And God doesn't hold my sin against me anymore. I'm not going to hold your sin. Forgive. Forgive the way God 
forgives you. And if you're holding on to bitterness, you're not there yet. You know, the thrust of this passage is clear, isn't it? You know, some parts of the Bible are harder to preach through than others. This has been a hard passage to be through. Not because it's hard to understand. It's pretty clear, isn't it? <laughs> I was pretty convicted. The thrust of this passage is God wants us as his people to live like it. He wants us as his children to live like we belong to his family. He wants us to protect the family honor. And protect the family name. He has put his name, the name of Christ, on us. If you're a Christian this morning, you're saying you belong to him. In your life, my life, ought to show. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. Sometimes it's so clear it's hard to it's hard to face. But I thank you for the way in which you've convicted me over the last couple of weeks. And I pray I would see real change in my own life. And I pray that you would deal with all of us the same way. Give us grace to, to live like your people. And to live like the children of God that we are by your grace. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.